I want to open it up and just, uh, the other day I was chatting with an older gentleman. He was probably in his 70s, and uh, he was telling me about his running career. And so I was immediately intrigued, and I asked him, you know, just share with me a little bit more. So he was telling me about all the marathons that he ran, and, uh, and so I tried to chime in with my, uh, my three-year cross-country career, <laughs> and I tried to act like, you know, I was this big runner as well, but it didn't, it didn't pair with all of the marathons and his qualification to the Boston Marathon. And so when he talked about the Boston Marathon, I immediately asked him, you know, tell me more, what was that like? And so he gave me minute by minute from landing on the plane in Boston <laughs> to all of the experience, the hotel, all the other runners, getting on the bus that morning at the wee hours of the morning, it was still dark out, and, uh, and, and just that whole running experience. But he asked me if I've ever heard of Heartbreak Hill. Heartbreak Hill. And so this is a, a very large, steep hill, I guess, in Boston that's part of the race. And wherever it's at, you know, whatever mile marker it's on, it's just very difficult. Uh, and, and so all the runners are forewarned, if you will, uh, knowing about this hill. Just keep in mind, don't forget this hill. Conserve your energy. Just be prepared for this hill. And he said that he was, the first time he ran the Boston Marathon, he uh, was standing next to this guy who was a, a Boston Marathon veteran, who had ran it many times before. And he said, everyone talks about this heartbreak hill, but don't be fooled or don't be tricked. There's a hill right before it. And it's very easy to think that that's the heartbreak hill. And so you think, oh, this is it. This is the one everyone's talking about. And you're running. And you're doing everything that you can. And you get to the very top and you look ahead. And then you see heartbreak hill. And your heart is probably broken, right, at that point. But that's where so many people fail or they quit or they don't make it, or they give up. It's that, that mind game, if you will. And so I want to think about that in context of the perspective that we have and knowing um, how we can respond to mountains in front of us or circumstances and, and recognizing, too, that this man that gave him that hint or that the best piece of advice that he could have heard was someone that had already been there. He'd already accomplished the race, right? He'd already run it. He had experienced it. And he was providing just that that tip, if you will, that just that that comfort, or just that that um, just that help that he could really take in and think through as he was moving forward and running that race, and just knowing that he's already done it, he's already accomplished it, and here's another perspective. If I were to zoom out, it was a different perspective that I hadn't seen. So, with that context in mind, our main point today is again, how do we respond to those circumstances through the lens of God, through His perspectives? trusting in his leading and his faithfulness and his guidance. And so we're going to dive into 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, we're going to start with chapter 3. We're just going to walk through these scriptures and really pull out some what can we learn from this. And so we got to start with some context. So here in 2 Corinthians, what we know is that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. And so in the first letter, 1 Corinthians, he's correcting and he's teaching through just the lens of love and encouragement. And so in other words, he was just addressing some different things that was going on. There was some deception that was taking place that was really just misleading the church, misleading God's people. And so it was received by most, but he decided that he wanted to pen another letter and so that there were some that were just denying you know, what was said um, and perhaps was even slandering Paul. And so in 2 Corinthians, he's really confronting and reaffirming just the first letter and that which was already said. So we're going to start in 2 Corinthians, and we're going to start in chapter 3. Uh, we don't want to be here all day, right? But uh, in chapter 3, where we're at in this is he's talking about the work that they've accomplished. 
He's talking about the ministry that they've done amongst the Corinthians and really demonstrating the validity of their message, of the truths that they've strived to proclaim, to preach, to act. And he's, he's really urging them not to turn away from this truth, not to turn away from the truth. And so again, he's validating what God is doing through the ministry by looking at the fruit of the lives of the people that have been touched or changed by the good news of Jesus, right? And not just by their own opinions or anything else that was going on, but really looking at what is that truth and urging us not to lose sight of that. And so again, as we read this, recognizing this is coming from the lens of love, right? From his caring and his encouragement or exhortation of really committing to God's word and God's truth as all authority. So we're going to start in chapter 3, verse 4. And it reads that we are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. So we are confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It is not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministered of his new covenant. And this is a covenant not of written laws, but of the spirit. That the old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the spirit gives life. The spirit gives life. So let's stop right there and let's break this down a little bit. But just that main point, and you'll see it's bolded on the screen. We are confident in all of this. Why? Because of our great trust in God through Christ. And so our first point, our, our first point for today, if you're taking notes, is we have to be confident in trusting God. We have to be confident in trusting in God. And that's easy to say, right? It's easy to sing. It's easy to pray. But what does that look like? And that means not just trusting ourselves, the things that we can muster up, the things that we can do, or even the things that we see, right? Not just trusting in what is seen in the natural or what we feel, right? Not just trusting our feelings in the current moments, but rather taking what we know, that our trust has to be in him. If you're like me, I can say, yes, God, I trust you. I believe you. I, you know, I believe that you are faithful. But how do I respond when things happen that aren't great, right? When trials or just tribulations or just... Uh, just life happens, right? Which is bound to happen. If you're like me, um, I usually go into, where are you, God? And then I want to offer my timelines or suggestions to him as if he didn't know, right? But taking that step back and really looking at what is my response, right? How do I live out that which we sing, when we, when, what, that what we pray, that what we read when we say, God, we trust you? And if you're navigating this, I want to let you know that's, that's part of the journey, that we all get to navigate. What does this look like to flex our faith muscles and live confidently and trusting in God? And we know that God is faithful and we can know it in our head, but when that gets down to our heart where that becomes our default response, right? How do we respond to life when life happens? And I love the reminder that if we were to quantify that we can trust in God and his faithfulness, it's 100%, that he is 100% faithful, not 90%, not 99, not 99.9999, but rather he is 100% faithful. And how could we live differently when we walked in that confidence and knowing that it's 100%, that we can trust God and that he is who he says he is, and that if he said it, we can believe it no matter how long it's, it has taken. We can see all over scripture so many stories of people that have just kept moving forward, kept believing, kept trusting God. And then we see in hindsight and we see how God showed up, how God moved, how God was faithful. And it's easy to go, well, well, that's easy. You know, this happened for them. But how many know that in-between period is not always hard? And I think that's the beauty of hindsight, 
that we can look back and remember at the faithfulness of God. And then that can again propel us and encourage us in moving forward and declaring that God is faithful amidst all seasons and circumstances. And so I think in my, my mere 30 years of living, and I can reflect back to my senior year of college. And uh, I was wrestling with a lot of just what's that next step? You know, I, pursuing a job or, you know, thinking about ministry, just, uh, just navigating and juggling a lot of things. And I felt like God just kept speaking to me about specific things, but nothing was lining up, nothing was opening up. And there was a lot of wrestling, which is okay, right? But there's a lot of wrestling of just, God, where are you? This doesn't make any sense. Why are you calling me here? Why are you doing this? And I had closed door after closed door after closed door. There were things that I thought I was even maybe overqualified for, if you will. And it was just closed door after closed door. And I remember in that season that God just really, you know, taught me so much on what does it look like to trust God, to be obedient, just to go low and slow, and just to wait on him and allow him to do what he has called us to do. And I can look back now, years later, and I could see God's guidance. I can thank him for all those closed doors, but that wasn't my first response when they were happening in the moment, right? I wasn't sure what God was doing. But I look back now, and that doesn't mean it's always, you know, all roses and sunshine, but I can see that God's hand and his guidance and his providence has been all over that. And I can look back, and that can remind me and encourage me when I'm looking at this next mountain or that next hurdle, that I can trust God then and I can trust him now. And the same goes with you all, that whatever you've experienced, you can trust him then and you can trust him now. And the power of our testimony, the power in sharing those stories, and why we see there was so much that God said, look back and remember. And so even in hindsight, in this passage, we see that Paul wasn't just boasting at the accomplishments of what they've done or the work that they've done in their ministry, but he was immediately giving God the credit in humility, knowing that this was the result of the faithfulness of God. And so let's pick it up again. So we're now in verse 7, and it reads that the old way, with laws etched into stone, it led to death, though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to even look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way, which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way, which makes us right with God? In fact, that first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So, if the old way, which has been replaced, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new, which remains forever? And this is very wordy, right? There's a lot going on here. But our point that we can glean from this is number two that we can expect God's glory, his presence in greater and lasting ways through the work of the Holy Spirit. How do we position ourselves to let that be our default response to live in that expectation, knowing that we can encounter God's glory in greater lasting ways? For it says in verse 8, shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way now that the Holy Spirit is giving life, even greater than what Moses had experienced? And so what is this glory? We can think of this as the presence of God. And how do we access that? It's by looking at the nature of God, at the character of God, becoming like him by talking with him, praying with him, abiding with him, worshiping him, and recognizing that it's a process, right? That it's a progression. But it leads to life. It leads to good things. It's good news. And so what is the fruit of this? It's becoming like Christ, which bears the fruit. And it's that reminder that there's always more, that we can never 
always figure him out. We can never exhaust the discovery of who God is. There is more, there is more, there's more depths. There's more peace, there's more joy, there's more hope, there's more love, there's more glimpses of his heart. And that's an amazing thing. And that's something that every day as we all are getting older, that we get to experience him in new ways, in deeper depths and deeper understandings because we have access to this glory, to his presence. And so how could we live differently? How could we respond differently with this expectation in mind when we know that we can align ourselves knowing that there's a God who is greater than any current circumstance or current thing and that he could do more than we could ask or imagine? And so recognizing we have this free gift and that it's not a one-time deal, but rather it will never fade, that it is lasting and it is eternal. So let's keep going then. We're at verse 12 now. And so it reads that since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We're not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened, and to this day, whenever the Old Covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so that they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed, but only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil, and they do not understand. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we're changed into his glorious image. So what is this saying here? So when Moses came down uh, from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments after he encountered the Lord, his face was literally glowing after being in the presence of God. And so it's, you know, what we read, what we see here is that Moses literally put on a veil to keep others from being terrified by the brightness of his face and also from seeing that the radiance fade away. After, you know, after time, being away from the presence, it would fade away. And so what is this illustrating? Well, it says that this veil illustrates the fading of the old system and really the veiling of people's minds, right, of our hearts. And this could be due to pride, just due to hardness of our hearts or even refusal uh, to acknowledge God, to repent, to, to surrender our lives to him. So really this veil, think of this as a barrier that keeps us from understanding and agreeing with Christ in scriptures. So it's that veil, that barrier from really acknowledging, surrendering fully to Christ. And so our point, our third point here then, is that we must anchor ourselves to the truths of God to avoid blindness and hardening of our hearts. We have to keep our hearts softened and tender and pure before the Lord. And just because, right, none of us are immune to this. Just because we've known the Lord, we're living for him and surrender, it is that constant progression it's that constant uh, steps of how do we anchor ourselves not to societal norms, not to whatever culture is saying, not to whatever is the loudest voice we see on social media, but to the truths of God to avoid that blindness and that hardness of our hearts. And so if we, have, if we, have a, we think about the truths, and when we recognize that firm foundation that we have to have, if our foundation is ever-changing, then it cannot be firm. And, we, and so we may have a sandy house. And Sandy House, it may be great for a season. It may be, uh, you know, uh, we may think it's fruitful in a way, but what we know and what we will see is that it will not last. And so when I think about that, you know, we think about having that firm foundation. 
I always think of uh, the beach, one of my favorite places, uh, any beach really. I love just the sand, hearing the waves. Um, and I just think about different times I've been on a beach and I've seen sandcastles. And, you know, especially some of those large ones that, you know, someone must have spent a lot of time uh, building that sandcastle. And even when I was young, every time I saw one, <laughs> I always thought, what a waste of time. Because you know that all it takes, no matter how intricate the details are, how big it is, maybe they wrote their names in it, whatever it is, all it takes is you know, some kid kicking it, or a rainstorm, or a heavy wind, or maybe some seagulls or something, and it's eventually going to crash. It won't last. It looks really cool in the moment, very intricately designed, but it doesn't last. And that's that picture of this first firm foundation of the truths of God's scripture through his word and through his spirit. What he has said and what he's continuing to say, that is how we keep our hearts soft. That's how we stay pure and keep ourselves from being blinded or hardened to truth. And it says that. It says in, these, in that passage that as we, uh, as we turn and become a Christian, as we surrender our lives to Christ, that the bell is taken away and it gives us that eternal life and it gives us that freedom from bondage. When we think about where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, right? That is a verse we like to proclaim that we live by. But we think about what that looks like. And I love that there was a study note and it read that the liberty that it's talking about where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. So that freedom, that liberty, which seems here to be chiefly intended, is a liberty from the blindness and hardness, which is upon men's hearts until we have received the Holy Spirit. What we know is when we receive Christ, when we surrender, we become a mirror reflecting God's glory. We just talked about how we have access to that limited amount or unlimited amounts of glory and that we can really move forward and in partnership with Christ in the greater things, knowing that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so I just want to challenge you, what would it look like if we started praying, God, lift the veil? God, lift the veil in our communities, in our homes, in our work, at school, wherever we're at, even just driving down the street in town, that we would be a people to pray, God, lift the veil. God, open their eyes. God, keep our hearts soft. Keep our hearts pure. May we remember what it was like to be blinded, to be hardened, to be hurt, whatever that was like. But God, how do we see from this perspective in praying, God, lift the veil? And so I want to just take a moment, though, and just thinking about when the veil's over, when it's blurred, when we're blind, when our hearts are hardened, it's like we have the wrong perspective. And it often is our default approach, our default response, as we live in a broken world, right? And we're all sinners. And so in thinking of that, though, it's a reminder of the perspective that we have to have. And so um, a couple weeks ago, or in, over Labor Day weekend, I was in downtown Chicago with some friends, and uh, for whatever reason, <laughs> they gave me the, uh, the role of instructions or directions. And so um, we did a lot of walking, obviously, but I remember we were trying to go to a specific restaurant, and so pulled it up on maps, and they're like, all right, Caleb, which way are we going? And on the map, it's, it looked like we were supposed to go left, like down six different blocks, and we would get there. So, um, oh, we're going this way. I put my phone down, and we just started walking. So about six blocks in, they were saying, are we close? Yeah, it should be around here. I look at the map, and we went the wrong direction. So we went six blocks the wrong way, so we had to turn around and go the exact other way. But if I was looking at my phone, it looked like I was supposed to go left. Everything aligned in that sense, but I didn't have the right perspective. 
I didn't know which way I was facing. I didn't know which way I was starting. The compass was, was off. And so that's the limitations of these maps, right? That they don't know where you're starting from, where exactly are you at, and so how easily it is that we can go in the wrong direction, right? And I think of that with the veil, that when we're blind, when we're hardened, it doesn't always mean that it's, it's intentional, but sometimes we're just off. We think we may have it, but we might just not be aligned fully with what God has for us. And so that's why we must, we must always keep ourselves anchored to the truths of God through his word and through his spirit and to avoid the blindness and the hardening of our hearts and just pray that God would lift that veil. And so we often don't know when we're blinded, when we're in deception, when we're blurred, but just praying into keeping God's spirit moving in us and just recognizing how do we anchor ourselves to those truths. And so let's just be challenged again to pray that. God, lift the veil. God, lift the veil. God, would you lift that veil? And may we just um, pray that over our, the people that we love and even over our own hearts. And so let's continue moving forward then with chapter 4. <clears throat> so in next part, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since God in his mercy has given us this new way, we never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try to trick anyone or distort the word of God. We tell the truth before God, and all who are honest know this. So let's just stop right there. And it's just that reminder that <clears throat> we don't have the authority to distort the word of God, that we cannot twist scriptures to make it fit you know, what we want it to, whatever society tells us to, whatever culture is allowed us about. And it's a reminder that when I'm reading scripture, you know, looking and studying context, but also to remember that it can't mean more today than it did back then. That this is, this is a real book that was written by real people at a specific time and that we can glean from it as it was inspired um, through, through God and that we can learn from it and recognizing that it is living and breathing, right? That it is active, that it is life-giving and that we either believe it all or we don't, Right? and that we can walk in, that there's no in-between. And so what makes it life-giving? What lives, makes it living and breathing? It's that when we read this, that the Spirit can speak to us by knowing what He has already said and what He's continuing to say and point us to truth, that this has to be our anchor. We have to be anchored in that and knowing that we cannot distort it. And I love this quote. I actually saw it on a meme this week, and it read that Christians don't define truth by listening to the loudest message told to us by culture, but rather we define truth through God's Word this is that compass. This is the reorienting of ourselves, of our hearts and our minds, that when we know, are we supposed to turn left or are we supposed to turn right, we turn to the scripture and we use this as our anchor and our foundation. And that doesn't mean, <clears throat> that, doesn't mean that we can't wrestle. We know that there's times in our lives that we're facing trials and tribulations. It's when, not if, right? And that we know that God is a big God, that we can encounter him through scripture, we can talk to him, it says to ask him for wisdom when things don't make sense, when things just doesn't, when we're trying to wrestle or figure out or understand, we can ask him for wisdom. We can ask him to speak to us through this, to illuminate that as we study and as we, as we dive into it, but to remember that it is living and active through his spirit and that he can bring peace to us. He can speak to us by knowing what he has already said and what he's continuing to speak to us. And so as we're pursuing this and as we're eating scripture, Avoid the red flags of trying to catch something or trying to prove God wrong or, or trying to discover something that hasn't yet been discovered. Just recognizing that's probably our pride and our arrogance that gets in the way. 
But when we come humbled and surrendered, Lord, teach me your word. Lord, open my mind. Lord, would you give me your wisdom that we can engage with him in that way and we can surrender our lives and be grounded. And so let's continue on then with verse 3. It reads that if the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it is hidden only from the people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, when we don't go around preaching about ourselves, we preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let there be light in the darkness. He has made this light shine in our hearts so that we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. So if many of you may know, that's one of my dad's favorite verses, that we are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. And it's that perspective and that reminder of exalting God, of trusting him, recognizing we have that access, we're going to anchor ourselves to him, and knowing that we are little. You know, I was at a, I was at a gathering, and, and someone that I really respect and admire, they were speaking, and they shared, they said, we are little, 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 little. She probably said it a thousand times, right? And it was just, I will never forget that the times when I don't, align with that, right? When I need to come in humbleness, when I need to surrender my will, my pride, my own understanding, remind myself that we are little, that we are like fragile clay jars, but we contain this great treasure through the empowerment of God, not of ourselves. And as a constant reminder that it is him, it is him, and it was him. And knowing that he's not an authoritarian or some scary guy, yes, he is still sovereign though. And yes, he loves and he cares and his default is to pursue you and he is sensitive, and he knows you, and he knows everything about you, but it's recognizing that right perspective, that we can be confident in what God does, not in the things that we can accomplish, but rather we participate and we partner with him, and that we are little. And so moving to verse 8, it says that we are pressed every side by troubles. We are not crushed, or we are pressed, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but we're never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. So in light of being pressed on every side, or perplexed, or hunted down, or knocked down, as we will experience in this life, I was spending time with the Lord one night, and I was, you know, if you call it, I was having a pity party. And I was just wrestling about some things, some whys, some mountains, some trials, some, some disappointments, whatever that, you know, and just really asking the Lord and just seeking his will. Why this, though? You know, why press down? Why being crushed? Why driven to despair? And as I was going through that, and I was just contemplating, and I was journaling and just praying through it, I was reminded of our constant growth and being a process. And I was like, okay, I get that, but, but why? You know, and um, and again, I'm sounding like my dad, right? We know he always loves to talk about it's a process, it's a process, it's a process. And it's not our favorite thing to think about or to walk through. But that evening, the Lord led me to Romans chapter 8. And so I want to bring into this, so we're going to 
Take a jump out of 2 Corinthians and go to Romans 8 quick, just for a couple of verses. But Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it's going to come up on the screen as well. And it read, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we're his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. So I'm like, amen, let's celebrate that. We're not fearful slaves. We are his heirs. And together we're, you know, we're seen as his children. We've been adopted through him. We have access to that. This is all good. But there's a second part to that verse uh, that's not my favorite part. And it, it basically illuminated and lift off the page, if you will. And I just know that that was just God speaking. And it said that if we are to share his glory, so if we are to share this glory that we've talked about, we must also share his suffering. But with that reminder that what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. So if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. And if you're like me, that's not fun to read. Uh, thinking about suffering. It's not enjoyable, it's not easy, and it's not glorious in the natural. But in times of suffering, as we see here, we can know that God can produce in us something that is greater, that it's not in our own understanding. And this was modeled and exemplified by Jesus. We see that he suffered. We know that he served, but he was also betrayed, though. He was misunderstood. He didn't conform to what was expected of society in that time. And we can know, though, we have that promise we have that comfort, we have that reassurance, that peace, that what we suffer cannot compare to the future glory shared in Christ Jesus. And we recognize, we know that we have far greater access to that glory, even more so than what Moses did. And that is good. And so that is why we can declare the goodness of God. You know, that song that we love to sing here. That is why we can sing that even when we don't see it, even when we're not going through a great season, even when it doesn't make sense in the natural Admit suffering, we can declare that God is good and that he is faithful. And we all know those, those peak seasons or those honeymoon seasons, if you will, that maybe when we first encounter Christ and we get saved and we see a total 180 in our lives and we see God just move in big ways, we are eager to serve the Lord. We're, we're you know, anytime the doors open at the church, we're there, we're on the front row, we're praising God. And we're zealous and excited as we should be. But then life happens, right? And the rains and the storms may come. And maybe it's a diagnosis that caught us off guard, or maybe it's a broken relationship, or maybe we lost a job, or something that we hoped for didn't come to pass, whatever it may be. But learning how to respond to that, to still declare that God is good, that he is faithful, that he knows, that's what it is like to respond to suffering in partnership with Christ. And I love the different voices in the body of Christ. You know, I think about the different influences from, from books and teachings and, and worship music and all that we have access to. And they're all important, as we know. But for me, there's nothing like um, seeing individuals declaring the goodness of God when they're older, when they're of older age. The, the 70, the 80, the 90-year-olds that are still declaring that God is faithful. And the, amount, and the many seasons that they've encountered and that they've lived through that they can stand up and they can declare the faithfulness of God. And I see how much that encourages and speaks to me 
that they keep going, that they keep running the race, that they're still on that Boston Marathon going through those hills, right? But that is so encouraging. And we know that there's been trials and despair and confusion and, and, and you name it. But yet they still, in faith sometimes, even when they didn't always see it, declared the faithfulness of God. And that is so beautiful. And some of you may know this, but Bill Johnson, he's a pastor at Bethel. His wife passed away from cancer. And uh, they, they had been praying for healing. They had been contending. And this is a ministry with global influence. And they've seen God just move in miraculous ways there. They've seen God heal. They've seen just amazing displays of God's power in even undescribable ways. And so this is a place that has seen so many miracles. And this is a man that has faithfully led this ministry for many years. And his wife died at a younger age of cancer and that, that the Lord did not heal her on this side of heaven, right? Those questions, those mysteries that we can't explain. And so there was a lot of people that were praying and following along with what was happening. And then the announcement came out when she passed away. And three days later, Pastor Bill decided he, was, he needed to speak. He needed to preach the message. Now he has a staff, a team of other pastors. There were many other people that would have been happy and, and qualified to be able to speak for him. But he felt called to speak. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't watched it, it was on July 17th. You can look it up. Um, we can talk about it afterwards, but there's a podcast or on YouTube, I'm sure. But he was standing up there, and it was just making a stand and declaring the faithfulness and the goodness of God, even though we can't see it or understand it in those wise. And it was not fake by any means. It wasn't just, well, hallelujah, God is good, praise the Lord. It was, it was emotional, it was heavy, it was gut-wrenching at times, but he stood there declaring the faithfulness of God, anchoring his heart, his emotions, his mind, his soul into the scriptures and the truths of God. What was he doing? He was acknowledging and responding well to suffering. And he was making a stance and he was using his platform to declare that goodness. And it spoke to the world, and it spoke to the body of Christ. And if I knew him, I would say thank you. Thank you for that example. Thank you for speaking that, that we don't have to know everything. We don't always have the full perspective. We don't have the hindsight in the moment, but that we can look back and declare the faithfulness of God. And so he is speaking in faith the goodness of God. He is declaring that. He is prophesying that. And that is such a beautiful thing. And one of the quotes that I took away in my notes from watching that was that my friendship or my closeness with God can only go as far as the depth of his lordship in my life. So our relationship, our closeness, our friendship with God, can only, we can only say we have that if we acknowledge the depths of his lordship or his authority or his truths into our own lives. And so do we allow the Lord to keep our, spot, keep our hearts soft by responding to suffering or to hardships, to circumstances, to trials, through the lens of his faithfulness, through the lens of his goodness? And not giving up, not creating our own path, not going a different way, not holding on to a fence and allowing us to go down a trail of deception, but rather putting him in his rightful place as Lord over our lives. So it takes us then, we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to jump to verse 16. And it reads, we're going to finish it this way. This is why we never give up. This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every single day. For our present troubles, present troubles, are small and they won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them, 
and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles that we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. This is why we never give up, right? For our present troubles. And I love that it's present, right? And it was small and won't last very long. Well, what does that mean? Does he know what we're going through? What they're looking at is in context in comparison to eternity, right? That we are only passing through. This is our temporary home. But we can trust his goodness and his faithfulness that is producing a glory that vastly outweighs and lasts forever. And so we don't look at just the troubles we see now. Although we will have them, although we will go through them, but rather we fix our gaze on the things that cannot be seen. And that's gonna, we're going to feel crazy sometimes, right? That's not the natural or the default response, but we recognize that things we see now will soon be gone. The things we cannot see will last forever. So this is our fourth point is that we must respond to circumstances from God's perspective, not our own. So we must respond through his perspective, through his faithfulness, through his truths, and not our own. And this helps us with pain and confusion and when we feel hopeless, because we will feel that at times. But we recognize we're not alone in that. And so, what does this look like? And one of the God's promises that, that I am uh, just really diving into and wrestling through is just understanding peace, right? That I can instantly, when I'm experiencing trials or hardships or, or just despair in any way, that I can spiral and worry. You know, what about this? What about that? And and my sense of trying to fix it or leaning on my own understanding and trying to control things. And it can just ruminate, ruminate over and over again and you can spiral, right? And I, and I need to draw my mind that you will stay in perfect peace whose mind stay fixed on him. Or just the promise that we can receive the peace beyond all understanding. But we thought about what that actually means. I have prayed that prayer over myself many times. I pray that over people. God, would you just provide the peace that surpasses all understanding? And it's almost like, you know, I must have learned it at some point in childhood and just praying that for peace. But to really dig down and drill down on what that means. And I heard this in, uh, in, in Bill's message. He said that God gives us the peace beyond our understanding. But that means we have to give up our right to understand in order to receive that peace. That if we are to give, if we are to receive, that we are to acknowledge that God gives us the peace beyond all understanding, that we have to give up. We have to reject our right, our desire, our fight to know and that understanding in order to receive that peace that surpasses all understanding. And that feels like a relinquishing control. That feels like holding on to something that we think we can fix, or we can muster in of ourselves, but to truly say, God, I trust you. I'm going to receive your peace, and I'm not going to spiral or ruminate over shoulda, coulda, wouldas, or anything of that nature, but I'm going to just acknowledge that your peace and it, it may feel crazy. It's not our default response. It's not natural for me. But we know, God, to receive your peace, I reject my need to understand, and I take on your faithfulness. I lean into your scriptures, your truths, and I praise you for who you are, even though I still have not yet seen. And so how do we respond to Christ's perspective and not lean on our own understandings, but rather lean in on what Christ is? And it says in here, that we look ahead, that we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. And so we can ask the Holy Spirit, and just this is a process, right? This isn't a one-time thing, but that we can continually learn and navigate. God, what does it look like to fix my gaze, my focus, my attention on the things that I cannot see? What does that look like in the natural, in the everyday? 
not just on Sunday mornings when we're here at church, but on Monday mornings when I'm driving to work, right? What does that look like to put my attention on the things that I cannot see? How can I respond better? How do I love better? How do I stay in peace? How do I acknowledge you and exalt you higher than any circumstances or troubles? And again, it's flexing our faith muscles and just acknowledging God, whether I see it or feel it or know it, I'm going to declare that you are good and that you are faithful. And so whatever you're carrying as we all have things, we all have trials and tribulations, and to know that that's okay, that God's not mad at you, that he's not disappointed in you, but we can just take a moment and just know that he says come. He says that he is here, that he is with us, that he provides that comfort and that peace that he knows. And so practically what that looks like, how do we engage and interact with God? And sometimes that's prayer, sometimes that's journaling, sometimes that's meditating on scripture, playing worship music, maybe going out for a walk and just acknowledging nature and seeing God's creation. And it's also living in community, right? It's gathering together as you all are prioritizing this time today to meet together, to surround ourselves with with trusted family, right? Friends and family that we are, that we are all on this path towards being fruitful and becoming more and more and reflecting God's glory and his likeness. And that's the blessing of community is that they can pull us up when needed. They can encourage us when needed. They can uh, ask us hard questions. They can keep us on track. They can keep our hearts from being uh, hardened, right? They can remind us that the veil has been lifted and we can proclaim together, God lift the veil. So to bring us home, we re- how do we reorient our truth to his word and not our own? How do we position ourselves to receive his glory in greater ways? How do we respond to his suffering, to pruning and refining? And how do we receive his peace that truly surpasses all understanding? And these four points, that we confidently trust in God over our feelings or the things that we see in the natural. We expect God's glory in greater and lasting ways, knowing that we have unlimited access and that it lasts forever, that it is eternal. We anchor ourselves to the firm foundation, knowing his word, his spirit, and gathering together as believers in the, in, the, in the church, and then practicing how to respond to life circumstances from God's perspective, those same four points. And to circle back, it's like the marathon race, as we talked about. Back to our, our friend who ran the Boston Marathon. If we're running the marathon, we're running this race, we can't, we can't do it by looking backwards the whole time, but rather we have to position ourselves rightly so. And we have to equip ourselves, right? We have to lean in to God's tr- truths, his scriptures, to, to teaching, to worship, to abiding, right? We lean in, and when we do that, we gain the right perspective. That's when we're able to look ahead. That's when we're able to run. And when we think of the, the full distance, it is overwhelming, right? We will want to quit. Maybe it's a mind game and the mentality, but just it's one marker at a time. It's one battle at a time. It's one heartbreak hill at a time. And it's also knowing from his perspective that he can help us see things. He can help us see that hill even before Heartbreak Hill so that we can be equipped and we can be prepared to run forward and run full speed ahead in the things of the Lord, acknowledging that he's already done it, he's already accomplished, he already knows. It's not in our strength. It's not in what we can muster. It's not in just being positive and and having a big hurrah, but it's by leaning in there It's in declaring God's faithfulness when we don't see it. It's by harboring ourselves in Christ's words, anchoring it on our soul, eating it, wrestling with it, just living in it, 
in just knowing that he is faithful, that he is at the finish line, and he encourages us, and he beckons us on this marathon. And so we can trust him, we can trust him, we can trust him. And so, uh, man, let's just pray into that as we close. I'll just invite you to stand up and just wrestling and thinking through, uh, you know, what does that look like, God? What does that look like to walk this out and to know that it is a marathon, not a sprint? And so, Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for your faithfulness, that you are everlasting, that you are never-ending, God. And we just declare right now, God, would you teach us what it's like to trust you, that our confidence would be based in you, that our anchor would be anchored in you, God, that we would position ourselves to receive your glory in greater ways, God, greater ways than Moses did. And God, that we would live differently because of that. And God, may we just be reminded of the firm foundation we can build, God, that we wouldn't be uh, uh, distracted by sandcastles, God, but that we would look for the rock, the rock of a firm foundation, and we would build on that, that when the rains and the storms come, God, that your word would still stand bigger than our own. And God, may we practice responding through circumstances, through trials, through tribulations, through loss, through grief, through despair, through hardships, God, knowing from your perspective that you are the compass, that you reorient us to your truths, and that you are faithful, that you are faithful, that you are faithful. So God, we just declare your faithfulness, God. Would you be with us? Would you speak to us? And God, we just praise you and we partnership with you. We agree with your word that is scriptures, God, and may we just continue to encounter new depths of your love and your kindness and your trustworthiness. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.